0: a poem by Mary Oliver. Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And scarved and smiling citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. What else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away. A land of trees, a wing upon a map, a wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. Peacefully from our frozen yards We watch our children running on the mild white hills. This is the landscape that we understand. And till the principle of things take root, how shall examples move us from our calm? I do not say it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. Tonight I want to speak on wholeness and healing through generosity. And um, this time of year for me, I hope it is for you, is a kind of reflective time, not only uh, in the s- Northwest, where it turns dark at 4:30 and rainy, uh, but it, uh, it's, that time of year alone feels kind of a time to turn inward. Uh, but holiday season from really Halloween through the first of the year. Uh, it also feels like a time of deep reflection. And sort of a summation. I was thinking about that tonight because a neighbor who is uh, in her 80s um, uh, has had this uh, bitter relationship with another neighbor over the last 50 years. And they've lived side by side together uh, a few houses away from us. And they're always trying to uh, position themselves in our judgment, uh, you know, elevate themselves in our judgment against the other person. Uh, and it's been going on for 50 years, and I was, I was just, I, I just thought, well, you know, what's the summation of all of this? What, what have you got out of it? What's the 80 x number of years? Where, where, when you look at yourself, what, what have you become through all of this? Um, and when I look at the culture, I'm, um, there's a deepening sadness in me. Uh, I was seeing the news tonight where there was a, a list of uh, video games that are so violent, uh, and they showed one of them. Uh, it was a gang, an inner-city gang, going through the city and uh, shooting people at, uh, just at free will. And you could select who you wanted to shoot driving your car. Um, and the, uh, the deep abrasive injustice and insensitivity that such games play. They are not innocent. They are not without impact. When I was an undergraduate student, uh, I uh, d- did a study um, where we showed um, to preschool children uh, violent cartoons and uh, cartoons that had no violence. And then we uh, we had a scale of um, that we recorded the Uh, aggressive behavior after each set of kids watched each set of cartoons. And we did this over a number of months uh, and uh, experientially it showed a significant rise in aggressive behavior, of course, with those kids who watched the cartoons, the aggressive cartoons. Uh, And there have been many studies since then that have uh, indicated a similar results, uh, but you can begin to see it now. You know, he begins, uh, as I have lived 58 years, I have begun to see the changes uh, where in sporting arena, I mean the sports, you know, where players are going into the audiences and uh, creating havoc uh, in, uh, in the political arena. I have never seen such a divisive, a campaign or a sense of uh, them and us embitterment even through our, this prolonged govern, gubernatorial uh, race. And it just uh, it, it's just it's time to take stock here. <laughs> and, um, it's time to look to see uh, whether we're um, a part of all of this divisiveness or whether we can counter Uh, with something that uh, could genuinely be healing. Uh, And my hope uh, that Thanksgiving for us is a time to pause uh, reflectively and ask those questions. It's also a time to appreciate. It's appreciating our affluence, appreciating the privileged existence that we have. Uh, No question about it and it's a it's a call for responding from that appreciation. Uh, when we respond from appreciation, then the actions that are generated from that are universally received as uh, helpful, as generous and, and it's around that sense of generosity, I think. If there's a word for me that holds a key relationship towards healing and non-division that holds a view Merely by holding the word. There are a few words that we have that hold such a universal appeal and inclusiveness as generosity. It's a very special word. But it's only special um, when we first recognize the privileged position that we're in. Honoring that. Honoring that, it. yes, it's we all of us, no matter what our situation. But then, uh, not denying the less privileged, and uh, because uh, we can very quickly um, become numb to those who are less fortunate, and then we lose our generosity. Generosity isn't from affluence to affluence. It's from, um, it's always from inclusive, inclusiveness. And so we can only really develop a generous heart when we are aware of the pain of those who are less fortunate. And I just, I want to offer uh, common sense practices, nothing special, common sense practices that allow us to come into that word again and again, to renew it in ourselves, to especially during this time uh, in our country's history, uh, and also this particular time uh, after our political divisiveness. Real generosity. And and for instance, I I realized that after I'd come back from India, uh, having seen. Uh, Real desperation, real desperation, Uh, real poverty, abject poverty, a hunger beyond measure. And I thought to myself, I want to remember this. And I know as soon as I land back in the States, it'll all become a time lagged blur and I won't remember any of it. Uh, So I said, OK, I'm going to fast one day a week. And I'm not fasting for health reasons or to be a good yogi. I'm fasting to remember the hungry. I'm fasting to uh, have some connection with the less fortunate. Uh, And I did that for two and a half years. So it's just once in a while uh, to put ourselves into the position of real desperation... We can do it from pity when we look out upon the homeless and we're tucked into our warm houses. Uh, that leveling position is really a sympathetic, but it's not connected. It's not connected. It's distant. It's not related to. It's not related to. And uh and I'm interested in, uh, in the relationship of it, not just knowing about it, but really feeling it in my heart, the pain of it. Uh, and any, any of these tricks that I'll mention tonight, and I'll mention several, are only as good as our willingness to renew our relationship again and again, because uh, we can very easily uh, numb over to whatever alarm clocks we set up for ourselves, especially uh, along this one, because the mind's just waiting not to have to feel disadvantaged, not have to feel the pain. You see, accessing, until the things take root, until the truth takes root, what shall stir us from our calm? I read that poem very deliberately because it moves me so much. That here we are in the middle of a war of our own creation, and we aren't even including the slaughter of those innocent peoples in which country we have invaded. The numbers come back in terms of American casualties, not Iraqis. And if they did, who cares, right? Who cares? And if we can begin to see the insensitivity of that view and the insulation uh, that we are creating, we can perhaps have some inkling of the absolute anger that other cultures hold for this one. And then the beginning of understanding might arrive. Until the truth, the principle of things take root, takes root. That's what we're doing here. We're trying to allow the principles to take root in us, the principles of life, the truths of life, the facts. Well, two counties north, some people lost their lives. So I do little, you know, little things, little uh, suggestions. Um, I find uh, pictures sometimes of people who are in desperate, like Sudanese, starving, and I put them on the refrigerator. So that when I open the refrigerator, towards my abundance, I have to hit something there. I have to see something. I'm afraid um, the Dharma practice only has one way, and that's the path of the heart. If it were different, if I could just give you an intellectual journey into emptiness, well, you can take it, but you would be um, a creature I wouldn't want to know. And there are many people who journey that way because the principle of thing has not taken root. And so just little little things that we can do during this time to stir us back, both in terms of our privilege and honoring that, not being shameful of that, but for whatever reason, this is the turn of the wheel of our karmic, of our karma so that we are, uh, we, we can... We can be healthy, relatively so. We can eat well, relatively so. We can be warm at night. Okay, great. Not to begrudge that. But not to lose sight of the extension of the populations. And so, uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to, I just, as an ongoing practice, again, just a suggestion, just an ongoing practice. I uh, every time I see somebody selling real change, that uh, newspaper uh, that I know has a legitimate, uh, is trying legitimately to come out of their poverty, not just use the poverty, um, not just use the money for to buy alcohol or whatever. I do. I, I just a dollar, right? Just a dollar, just automatically. Um, just as a training, just to connect, just to, um, because the impulse of generosity comes to us many times a day. But how often do we act upon it? How often do we turn away from that impulse? So a a practice for you might be that this coming week, I think it's part of the homework. Every time you have the impulse, you act on it. Don't question it. I'm not talking about giving your house away. I'm talking about, you know, just the impulse. Okay, let me, I want to give something to that person. The enormous um, a joy one feels. When you receive a present, you get happy. One can obtain happiness, which is a very transitory state, from receiving gifts. Well, I'm just the sweater I always wanted. But if you want to transcend happiness to joy, that can only happen through giving. Why? Because we're relinquishing. We're giving up rather than adding to. And with that giving up, the mind springs forth in lightness and in being unburdened, in true connection, in true connection. Another thing that I just do, I'm just offering these things, is that every time I turn on my computer, no matter how much of a rush I'm in, which is a key, I go to the hunger site. And the hunger site has this thing where you click on, there's like five or six different tabs, hunger and rainforest site and literacy site and breast cancer site and children's health site, et cetera, et cetera. And... Uh, you t- you push on it and it goes into a page of advertisements, um, but just clicking on it, the the very click uh, for no money that you nothing only your time, uh, then the uh, sponsors of that page the uh, the advertisers give money to that site just for you press it. So and if you do it quick enough, I don't have a DSL line. You can do it so that you don't have to see the advertisements and you can go to the next tab. So you click and tab, click and tab, and you can get through the whole thing in no time and you don't have to see a single ad. <laughs> the hunger site. Why not? Why not? Why not begin when you turn on the computer? The very mechanism, the mechanics. Why not Why not start it that way? Why not start your day that way? But remember this, that no generosity, we cannot build um, the muscle of generosity in abstinence. We have to bring awareness to the problem. We have to see the pain. We have to feel the pain for the heart to be engaged. See, this is the trick. So, when you go to the hunger site, do some metta for the hungry. Feel the connection between clicking and hunger. Oh, may all beings be free of hunger. Click. May all beings, may all children have adequate health care. Click. The Buddha said, if you knew what I knew about generosity, you wouldn't let a single meal go by without giving some away. The power of it. The power of it. And then the, my favorite Christian um, presentation of Christ is where he's standing, just holding his hands out. All come, everybody come, no one excluded. Everyone, everyone, everyone come. The ultimate generosity. I remember uh, that uh, when I was a monk in Thailand, um, I would be sitting and walking in my little hut and I would um, venture up to the front of the monastery and I'd see the Ajahn, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and all day long, people would just come. Bus loads would come. People would pour in, gather around. All day long. All day long until he had to go to bed. Sixteen hours a day, he'd just sit in his chair and people would come. And I thought, wow, what, what an enormous statement of this. Of the hands wide open. Everybody come. Everybody come. And you begin to see, you know, in Buddhist countries that have lived with this tradition... For eons, they have developed a culture that instills uh, generosity and morality as the foundation on which the Buddhism is practiced and insight arises. And what we are trying, we're trying to, you know, forget, forget all that stuff. Let's just get to the insight, right? The Western approach is to go to McDonald's. It's the hard, you know, which is hard. It's hard to be, um, to put into action. We just want the wisdom. You know, give me the, give me the, give me the Big Mac. Don't forget all the other frails. I just, I just want it. So I'll just sit. I'll just, like I did, I'll just sit year after year. What about the... You see, it just doesn't happen that way. This is this is a cellular change. This is a change of our body-mind integration in action. Not just the uh, gleaned wisdom from uh, practice and from observation, but the integration of that observation into the cells of our body so that to receive and to give and to... And to move out and to raise one's hands in inclusion—that—that's the integration. That's where this thing is going. That's where this thing is going. And as soon as we, uh, as soon as we. Um, make a move towards generosity. Expect the mind, because that's the heart in it's great uh, yearning. Uh, it's, it will set an intention to be generous, to look for opportunities to give, to look for opportunities to be inclusive. Uh, but don't expect the mind to roll over. The mind comes back at you with your selfishness. It will stamp Itself with the selfishness that we have lived with. And so, in order to be generous, in order to move in that way, we have to expect that what is going to come up for us is our objections to generosity, our selfishness, our neediness, and our sense of dismissal of the pain of the deprived and hungry. But are we strong enough? Are we strong enough? To know, first of all, that's how the mind is. It just That's what's going to happen. Are we strong enough not to be deterred by that? Not to have our glance deflected by that? And to work with what it is, why we become so contracted around our own needs, And our fear response. To to feel that, to to begin to work with that as a workable way to come back into the field of generosity. For generosity is not a field um, in in distant places. It's the field we walk upon when we release our, our selfishness. It's the open heart that's being barred by our fear, our inward poverty, really, by our inward poverty, which is extremely uh, prevalent in the West. Not external poverty, inward poverty, self diminishment. It's interesting. It's interesting in a country. Uh, where possessions uh, are really the rule of the day, the rule of the culture, that our generosity is often around thing-giving, which is a very detached, disconnected way to give. Isn't it really? I mean, just let's look at it. Because you don't have to really be present. You give the sweater... Thank you very much for the sweater, Aunt Sue. And is there much heart in that? Are are there other ways for generosity to be uh, authenticated? Besides, uh, not that uh, money and gifts uh, don't have purpose and intention and uh, don't... uh, Support, uh, non-profit organizations and, uh, and keep good works going. But if that's the limit of what we know generosity to be, then it's really a very disconnected form of relationship. Because at the heart, remember, at the heart of generosity is connection, is feeling the pain, is connecting. story I sometimes tell, not one I'm proud of. I was on a corner once um, with a very, on the same street corner, going in the opposite direction as I, across a different, was a homeless man, and I was waiting for the light to change uh, so that I could get away from him, because he, uh, he smelled so bad. And so I was sitting there on the corner, we were both on the corner together, uh, and I uh, the, my light changed to my direction so I started to go across and he uh, just grabs my arm a little bit and I thought oh God what's this about and it was about this time a few years ago a little later uh, later in December grabs my arm and he, I whirl around ready to confront the attack and he says uh, well, Merry Christmas he says, he says Merry Christmas You see. Now first of all, you see, the first thing that you have to confront is your own pain in that situation. And then you have then through that, not denying it, not being coarse, one's own um, limitation. That's okay. You know, we're all we all have that. We all get caught up in in the fear response to life rather than to the generous response to life. And so, okay, we face that and we look at that. And we, look at the, we look at the fear. And then uh, you meet the eyes of the person wishing you well. And you feel the pain there. Now the heart even opens more. And then whatever connection occurs or doesn't occur from there. Because uh, if you look at generosity uh, beyond just thing-giving... then where is it that we could put some useful energy in this culture to really build the bridges of connectedness? Where can we change our worldview from contraction to expansion? Because a generous heart is one that lives in abundance regardless of wealth. See, a generous heart is not based upon how much we have. It's based upon the inward spirit of abundance. Inward abundance. And when we're contracted, we keep, we form boundaries. Boundaries around our generosity. You see, when we form boundaries, and they can be like concentric circles that... Um, us really. And where do we where do we where do we draw the boundary? Family, self, family, anything outside of that is not included. How about country? Seems to me that that's a boundary that we're casting forth because of the fear level, building fences. And so, where, where, so where in the world do we cast? Where, where is it that we limit the heart? When we do metta, it's for all beings, for all the hungry. Some of the Nonprofits, you know, Doctors Without Borders, Oxfam, that feeds the world's hunger. I look for, I don't look for exclusivity for this country. One of the things I used to do, and again, these are just little suggestions or not anything beyond that, is that... Uh, uh, I used to uh, send my nieces and nephews, which were a considerable number, instead of trying to go out and buy things for them, when they had plenty anyway, I would um, give them a, a gift in their name for, you know, for Save Our a foundation that was like a goat was purchased in your name for somebody who lived in Guatemala or El Salvador or something. Um hopefully with the intent for them to look out beyond their own riches and not to begrudge the fact that uncle rod didn't give them anything this christmas <laughs> which is which is always my fear where do we, where do we establish the borders the blue states is that where our borders are? Is that it? I'm not living in those red states. Patriotism. See, till the principle of things take root, then patriotism will be our zeal. And when what, what, inside this border, we it seems to me that we're just dying from our own um, isolation, from our own sense of constriction and containment. So, what what are some of the ways that we could? expand this field of generosity beyond thing-giving. Well, how about uh, the generosity of attention? Attention. When we give attention to someone, we're affirming them. Can you give a better gift than that? To affirm someone, To pay attention to them, you have to connect with them. You have to feel the relationship. Which is true generosity of the heart. Validating them. When attention is paid, I am seen. I am seen. And in a world where Not much seeing is even taking place. How much noticing is really occurring? What we call quality time is really taking your son to the movies. Not seeing, not validating, not holding somebody in attention. I can't think of a a more um, gracious gift than the gift of your understanding. For when we see, when we acknowledge, when we pay attention, then we understand the person. We let the person into our heart and we understand them. How about the gift of your time? How about spending time with someone? You see, that runs counter to the cultural imperative which time is a commodity, the most precious commodity, the last thing that I'll give. That's what our social engagement component of Sims is about. Going down and helping out at a homeless shelter. Serving food working at Northwest Harvest. The willingness to give up that precious commodity because I might waste it and I need to save it. It is precious. But not in the way we use it. What we mean by it being precious is that it's productive time. It has to be productive. We have to have made something. We have to have increased something. We have to have something visually represented for our use of time. But really, what time is is sharing our aliveness. Sharing aliveness. And with that sense of time, where the time, we're not being pressured within time, so that we're offering time not under the gun of pressure, then that's patience. Have you ever spent time with somebody who's really patient? And isn't that like a blessing that you just can't believe that they're there with you and there's no other thing that they're hurrying to go to? That the point of their being. Is to be with you. Isn't that an amazing gift? The gift of time. I just, so many memories come back of my grandfather. Just, just there was no, when I was on his knee, there, I knew there was nowhere else he wanted to be. And I could feel that. And I don't know, maybe I was two, three years old. And it, the whole thing opened up. Because he wasn't listening to me for something. The whole, the whole thing opened up. And then you understand the origin of contentment. And you also see that generosity can only come from contentment. How about the gift of space? So that when we're with someone, we are not telling them or commanding them, but just giving them space to be authentic, to let their voice be heard. To let their voice come through. That's the gift of their own creativity, of their own authentic being. And it provides an enormous sense of safety. When we're there without demands, when we're there without judgment, we create that space for authentic living. And then we begin to see that the origin of growth is not through coercion, force by someone else to grow. It comes when we feel safe, when we are given space, when we are given attention, and we're given time. From those from that display, from those come the willingness for one to explore one's own world within the safety of another's attention, within the spaciousness of not of not of non judgment. In fact, it's the source of growth. The sacred made manifest is generosity. And as you begin to practice, you begin to feel that. You begin to feel... um, we begin to feel the, the connection. And you, you want to give back. You want to return. You don't want to just be the recipient all the time of other people's whatever. It just doesn't feel balanced. And you look for opportunities to give back. You just can't remain, especially when we re- realize our own privilege, position on this earth, it just It's not a should. If it comes from a should, I would rather it not be done. It comes from a flow back. It's the tide flows up, it feels full, abundant, and it flows back out into the ocean. It's uh, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Suzuki Roshi talks about a stream that passed in front of their monastery. And he said that the monks would go down there with a dipper and they would s- scoop out a a dipper full and they would drink half and then they would throw the other half back into the water. And he says, you will not understand until you practice why the other half goes back into the water. Because it has to. Not intellectually. Not from the science of thirst, but from the abundance of heart. I was reading a story about a a policeman uh, who was uh, on the Golden Gate Bridge just as someone was about to jump and he got out of his police car and the person jumped off just as he grabbed him And he, the policeman, was almost pulled off with the person trying to commit suicide. And uh, he was honored because it almost cost him his life, and he did save the other person. And he was asked by the press uh, how he could have acted uh, with his, without his, not within his own benefit. I mean, he wasn't even considering himself. And he said. I could not have lived with myself had I let that man jump without trying. See this growth when we take a, when we embrace uh, generosity when we take it on and we say okay, this is going to be this is a path in and of itself. We can fold everything into that word. We can set the intention in our life. Let me learn about generosity, which means you will learn about your selfishness. Let me learn how to embrace this word, how to move with this word. Not not the may I be the most generous person. None of that. I just want to learn this word. I want this word to fill me. And then we start seeing. We start seeing through our actions. We start sensing something that comes alive through that intention, something that resonates very deeply, which is the foundation. In the crescendo of the choir. (laughs) And we know why we're practicing. We know why we're here. You don't say, What am I doing this for? What's this all about? Which you will if you get lost in the root of the mind because you won't feel it. You just feel the billiard ball of your separation. But there's no question when you move with the path of the heart why we're doing what we're doing. And they all beings... know that when the truth of things take root, may all of us have a very thankful Thanksgiving. Can we sit for just a minute or two? Questions? If anyone has any questions about any aspect of this, we can... Oh, right, 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 right. So, right, right. Yes, and uh, we went to see Michael Mead um, and uh, he told the story, a fantastic myth, drummer, mythological. The story was about a a woman, very, very, very briefly, a woman who um, uh, uh, was living with somebody who was uh, enraged from battle and uh, she uh, was being quite likely abused w- within this relationship and she went to seek uh, professional consultation um, uh, to, to have a, for, for a potion that she could give her lover so that he would calm down. And he, they, he, the, the wise man said, you have to bring me a whisker from a tiger. A live tiger. And uh, and I'll make you that potion. And so she threw a bunch of trials and tribulations, clips off the whisker of a live tiger, and brings it back to the uh, the wise man, and the wise man just throws it in the fire. And she says, how could you do that? I've spent... He says, because you've already proved you have the courage now to face him. And so just that sense that... Uh, there's much more in us than we, uh, we look for ways uh, to handle situations external to what we already hold, to what already we have. Uh, we, look, um, we look for generosity in places where we're not. So let's look for places where we are, where we're living, where we actually uh, hold the thread of our aliveness. And to work that thread of our aliveness uh, courageously into the pain of the world is really the art and journey of the meditation and uh, the path uh, of cultivating generosity as well. Yes? In the past couple of talks, you talked about meeting um, leisure time. Yes from the heart? Yes. And I've been thinking about leisure time and I'm just curious if you could talk about what you mean by leisure the question is about leisure time and how leisure time helps facilitate access to the heart. Um, I think that's uh, really what Thanksgiving um, was meant to be. It was a pause. It was a say, okay, wait a second here. You know, it's the end of fall. I mean, I'm translating it in my own way. Uh, and there's abundance here. Let's pause. Not just keep working endlessly here. Let's pause and see what all this work has been about. Let's pause and get back together here and see the connection that this work has meant to ripen and enrich. Uh, and so, and sitting down with each other. Um and, uh, and I, I think that what I meant by leisure time is the willingness to pause. The willingness to give yourself the benefit of your own generosity by giving yourself the benefit of some time to reflect, to be able to hold uh, or to ask pertinent questions of your life. Uh, to see whether uh, your life is being both in terms of questions, if your life is being lived in accordance to the journey you most want, but to be able to examine uh, the way life is being held in each moment. And so really, uh, in the beginning especially, it requires time outside of normal interaction. And in Buddhism, they talk about renunciation. And you know, and and as a monk, that's what you really do. Is you, you give up entertainment and you give up all the normal ways that we distract ourselves, television and all of that, and you use the time for time self-reflected. I don't think we need uh, to become monks and nuns, but I do think that we need time in which the normal distractions of our life are not imploding upon us so that we can determine our balance, determine our posture, to look and to examine, to ask questions, ongoing questions that are extremely important. And for most people, uh, they spend that time on vacation where they're doing more of the very distractions that keep them from those questions. My question is, is there a way for us to live our life, not disengaged, but be fully engaged with those questions on our lips? There is something you have to give up in order to do that. You have to give up self-validation. To self-examine, you can't constantly be self-validating. And so there has to be a deep sense in each of us that the questions need to come not according to the cultural imperatives, but according to our hearts' deep felt need to know and to understand ourselves. And when that urge is felt, then the time will be there. I have found that to be extraordinarily true, and I don't mean at all to be Pollyannish about it but as the urge grows in each one of us then the time allotted for the maturation of that view is also accompanies the urge so that the universe gives forth the time for the very exploration of the journey in whatever way uh, in whatever engaged way that can be done um, and uh, you know suddenly um, I, I just have seen it in my own life Uh and so the work, the universe, when that urge is such, works cooperatively towards the, uh, the um, towards the enrichment of that understanding. And, and so that's that's really what I mean by leisure time. Yes. Mm-hmm. You have to say that a little louder, I think. How would you suggest to deal with the with fear? fear? Yeah. That, um, that makes it difficult to make a heartfelt connection with a disadvantage uh, or a suffering. Right. How would you, uh, how would I suggest working with the fear that uh, sends you the opposite way uh, towards the disadvantaged, right? That, that uh, has you Right. Distance yourself from Well, first you have to see that problem. First you have to understand that. uh, That you're afraid of, for whatever reason, the situation that they're in. If they're homeless, you're afraid of of the potential of you being homeless or the possibility of, if you looked them in the eyes, here's another fear. You might be afraid that if you looked them in their eyes and you really made genuine connection, you might have to take them home. Right. So that's another fear. I know. My God, what am I going to do if I really make connection with this person? Um, and uh, a lot of that is just, you know, the mind's hyperbole. What, what you begin to do is um, you don't see the homeless. You see the human being and you see the condition that surrounds the human being. You have to be willing to go through the fear to make the connection of equality. If you stay at the level of homelessness, then you stay at the level of pity. If you connect with the person's humanity, then you're connecting through your fear. The fear is no longer, is not around the humanity, it's around the outside trapping of the humanity. And so first, um, feel the fear of the outside trapping and then see if you can't, when you give the dollar to, for real change, look the person in the eye. It's a human being, not a condition that you're serving. To me, as soon as I make that contact, then the resolution of the heart is there, the connection is there. That's the real giving. The dollar was a way to do it. And so, so you have to be willing to. You have to, as in any journey. You have to be willing to go through the, the fear of the context. Um, and to look at the real points in which the fear are, are, you know, is there, is this true? Is it? Am I afraid of being homeless? And okay, what, you know, I grew up poor, and I just can't bear. The, I don't know. I look at that history. Okay, I can work with that. And as you hold the fear, then you're going to come into the human uh, connection that invites uh, something far richer. Uh, Other questions or comments? Yes. So the same holds true if we're in front of someone who does a lot of things incredibly differently than you do. Just a thing. Does the same hold true for someone who thinks very, very differently of, than you do? Yes. Like a red state. That's somebody from a red state. Or, or a blue state, depending on how you voted. Yes. Yes, it holds true. Because their expression uh, is often around their pain. And if you get lost in the expression, then you're going to miss the pain that's driving the expression. If you miss the pain, you'll never connect with uh, in any compassionate or fulfilling way. It's... yeah. Because the expression is just the expression. It's their opinion against yours. And their opinion is always going to be different than yours. And mm-hmm. if you go far enough, you know, you'll find some part of that opinion that differs from you. In pain, uh... Um Almost all opinions come from pain. I can't... I could almost say all opinions come from pain, but I haven't scanned it enough in my own to say that. But I, can, I cannot think of a single opinion that doesn't come from pain. Because, you see, when you begin to understand how the mind works, it forms itself around something as a conclusion to make it secure... For me because it's so difficult for it to be un So an opinion or a view is really a consolidation so that the righteousness of my own way and my judgment can be positive about myself. And then I would know, you see, all of that just kind of, it's all around self-validation. Well, well, you see, if you just if you try to find meaning in where they find meaning, which is in their opinions, I don't think you're going to go very far in that. You have to go deeper than the opinion. You have to go to the neediness that creates the. I mean, can't you feel? I can feel it when you when you hear. Um, what's an example of it? Uh, oh, the the religious right. That's fear. There's no question in my mind that that's fear that's leading to that kind of, of projected uh, uh, morality. Well, okay, so are we going to stop with the morality or are we going to go through to the fear where, where that's really, you see, then you, okay. Okay, so there's a human being afraid. So now there's a human being afraid in front of you, not a religious evangelical. Now that's a very different kind of posture To take with somebody, you're not, you don't have to defend when somebody's afraid. In fact, what they need more than anything, right, is connection. So I, I just think that's the way to go. Yes. Right, exactly. The way my own opinions are right. are the, the result of pain. So right. It, right. You know, it would be easy to sit here right. and be righteous and be right. for you. That's right. That's right. The, the, the point was that you're never going to be able um, uh, to touch somebody else's pain of their fear until we have touched our own, until we have journeyed uh, and the willingness to journey because... It's the issues that I mean. It's the same process inwardly as outwardly. Um, We have all these issues that that keep the pain of our fear from us, Uh, and we hold the issues uh, as a defense against the fear. Uh, And if we're not willing to look at the fear that drives the issues, then the issues will be the outstanding relevance of our life, not healing to the fear. And to heal to the fear is to heal myself into wholeness. Because once I can touch the fear, it can then uh, I can then um, uh, embrace it as a part of my life, not let it drive me from my life through the issues. When the issue becomes important, I'm being driven away from my life, away from the very aliveness that the fear represents and holds for me. It's, a, it's energetically, it's a part of the whole system. Fear energy, love energy, are both energies. Both have to be embraced. So that's a very good point. Okay, so maybe maybe we'll thank thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org